it was the, uh, the first time I had ever hooked up my in-law's trailer uh, to the hitch on the back of our van. Now, it was, it, was, it was not the first time I'd ever hooked up a trailer to a van. When I was younger, my uh, parents had a boat, and we used to tow the boat around, and I had hooked up and driven a trailer, uh, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times in my life because that it, w- it wasn't the first time. It was just the first time I had ever hooked up my in-law's trailer to the back of my van, which is why I was a little bit annoyed uh, with the degree to which my wife was sort of hovering over me, right? Like in my head, I get it. Okay, Krista is nervous. This is her parents' trailer. She doesn't want anything to happen and whatever. So she's there and hovering and watching everything I do and she's asking all these questions and I'm thinking, but you did this as a, like, as a kid. You went camping. You're the, I didn't camp as a kid. You did this. Why are you asking me all these questions? And actually, as we were going through the process of hooking up the trailer to the van, and she was asking me, you know, have you, um, you know, hooked up the trailer lights? Did you um, do the safety chains? Did, you know, I'm starting to think, like, just the, the emergency, you know, the emergency brake release or whatever. Like, just asking these questions. And I'm like, honestly, I've done this before. Just relax. So we get it. I mean, I, I finally I get to the place where I'm all finished. I look around. I say, I think that's it. I think we've, I think I've done everything. Everything looks like it's all set up. And Krista says to me, she asks me, "Did you hear the tongue click down onto the ball of the hitch?" And I looked at her. I said, "Honey, this isn't the first trailer I've ever hooked up in my life." And she said, "I know that." But did you hear the tongue of the trailer? Actually, did you hear the click of it clicking down on the ball of the hitch? At which point, I rolled my eyes. (laughs) Which, despite what she says, is a spiritual gift. To, To be able to communicate with an eye roll in a really effective way. And I am quite good at it. I rolled my eyes at her and I said... We'll be fine. Let's get going. So we climb in the van and we pull out of the driveway and turn left. And we turn left at the first street that was going to you know, take us out to the highway where we were going to head off to our camping trip. And it was probably um, the very second that I hit the first dip in the road uh, that I knew that we were in a significant amount of trouble because the second I hit that first dip, we came back up the other side uh, and I could no longer feel the trailer attached to the hitch of the van. Uh, the trailer was still there. I could feel it tugging against the safety chains. <laughs> But it was very clearly no longer uh, hitched to the van. So I did what I had to do. You slam on the brakes. Uh, at which point, uh, we got rear-ended by my in-law's trailer, which came up behind us really fast. But of course, because it was no longer on the hitch, the tongue had hit the asphalt and it came crashing into the trailer hitch, which immediately punched a series of holes into the fiberglass uh, across the front as we were bouncing down the road trying to get the van to stop. 
we came to rest with the trailer detached from the van, hanging on by the safety chains, right beside a brand new Chevy Avalanche that was parked on the other side of the road. That was the day I learned that when you hitch a trailer, you're supposed to reef on the tongue just to make sure that it is clicked onto the ball of the hitch. That, that was the story my wife reminded me of when I texted her this week and said, can you think of a time when I was absolutely certain that I was right and I turned out to be disastrously wrong? <laughs> and that is a picture of exactly the kind of church and Christ followers that Jesus does not want us to be. Uh, we've been in this series for the last six months, in this series of conversations that we were calling Love Beyond Belief, which is an exploration of what it looks like to love people who are wildly different than you in what they believe to be true about life. That we believe that a life of following Jesus is a life of living in the way of Jesus, trusting that the way of Jesus is the fullest, deepest way to live a human life, that that what it means to live as a follower of Jesus is to trust Jesus to, to transform us so that we live more and more in the way of Jesus, to forgive us when we don't live in the way of Jesus, which of course is always the way of love, of receiving love from God and returning that as a love for God that translates into a love for ourselves that manifests itself in a love for the people around us that we together as a community can love the world and specifically love the world that is incredibly different than us in the way that people believe, in the way that they think about life and faith and everything. And so in this series, The Gospel of Us, we're exploring the heart attitudes that are required if we're going to be the kind of community that learns how to love people beyond belief. And last week we talked about hospitality, about what it looks like to love the stranger, to make a, an open space in our home and in our heart and our life for people who are different than us. And this morning we're going to be exploring the second heart attitude of love beyond belief, which is the heart attitude of humility. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, if you have a Bible or a Bible on your uh, app on your phone or device. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance to the faith God has distributed to each of you. I, I want you to grasp the weight and significance of this verse. It's written by a guy named Paul who is the church's first great missionary theologian after Jesus, of course, who is the church's greatest missionary theologian. And the apostle Paul wrote this book of Romans where for the first 11 chapters, he gives the fullest explanation of this amazing thing that God is doing in the world of rescuing humanity and creation from darkness and chaos and pain and turmoil and death through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And after 11 chapters of describing what God has done for us, he gets to chapter 12 and he starts chapter 12 by saying, listen, now this is what I want you to do. 
That's what God has done. This is what I want you to do. And he goes on to unfold five chapters of really practical, tangible instruction about what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus if you live in the first century in Rome and you're a follower of Jesus. It's just five chapters of ethical instruction. And all five chapters of ethical instruction come under the heading of this one verse. It's as though what Paul is saying in this single verse is that this is the thing. This is the heart attitude that you need if you're going to live out any of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. If you're going to live in the way of Jesus, the only way that you can do that, the foundational heart attitude for all of it, is the heart attitude of humility. Don't think of yourself more high. There's a, there is a don't and a do in this verse when it comes to humility. Humility comes with a don't and a do. It says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Paul says, if you want to become the kind of person who lives in the way of Jesus, the most important and foundational attitude that you can have is to not overestimate yourself. To not overestimate your maturity, to not overestimate your character, to not overestimate your knowledge, to not overestimate your understanding, to not overestimate the depth and strength and robustness of your faith, just to not think more highly of yourself than you deserve. That's the don't. The do is kind of the opposite. He says, instead, think of yourself with a steady, sober, clear-minded assessment that lives with a, a, a profound sense of self-awareness of who you really are. Uh, notice that the do, by the way, notice that the do is not do think lowly of yourself. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking badly of yourself. You know, like the, the person who's relatively fit who says, oh, I'm just so fat right now. Or the, the person who's really smart who says, oh, I'm so dumb. Right, the, the kindest, gentlest person, you know, who says, oh, I'm just such a terrible human being. No, you're not, right? That's, that's not humility. That is called false modesty. It's actually deceptive. It doesn't give credit to God for what he's doing in your life. It doesn't give credit for, to you, to who you are. That is not humility. Humility is learning how to think rightly about yourself. To not overestimate yourself, but to learn to think rightly. And Paul says the ability to think rightly, soberly, clear-mindedly about who you are, about what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, the, the ability to be able to think about yourself that way and to identify your strengths and weaknesses and so on, that is foundational to being the person that God has created you to be. Because everything about the work that God wants to do in your life is rooted in humility. Everything. Right? Um, Everything about what God wants to change in you, how God wants to grow you so that you can become a person who looks more like Jesus, everything about that begins with how you think and with learning to think well about what it means to follow Jesus. That's what Paul says actually in the two verses before the verses that we read. He says in verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that God has done, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How would I be transformed? By the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says this, listen. Considering everything that God has done for you, this is what I want you to do now in response. I want you to give your whole life, your whole person, everything about you, I want you to give yourself back to God as somebody who is going to live in conformity to God's vision for life. You're going to be transformed in the kind of person you are. And the way you're going to be transformed so that you become the kind of person who lives God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, the way you're going to be transformed is by the renewing of your mind. This is incredibly significant, and I want to make sure we get this. Your ability to become the person that God wants you to be, your your ability to become the very best version of yourself, your ability to become somebody who lives in the way of Jesus is directly related to your ability to change the way you think about life and faith and everything. Your ability to change is directly related to your ability to change your mind. Think about that. Because the person, and and that, by the way, that is an act of humility. To say, I used to think this way, but I was wrong, and now I think this way. And because I've changed the way I think, I'm becoming a different kind of person. That is an act of humility. Because, I mean, think about it. Who is the person who never changes their mind? Right? Who is the person who will absolutely, fundamentally, no matter what you do, no matter what conversation you have, you can never get them to change their mind. It's the person who is fundamentally convinced that they're just right about everything. That they're right about what they think. They're right about what they believe. They're right about how they behave. That person is never going to change their mind. Because they believe the fundamental conviction of the person who says, I'm never going to change my mind about what I think. The person's fundamental conviction has to be because I believe that I'm already exactly like Jesus. Right? Or say it a different way. Say it the opposite way, which is even more arrogant if you think about it. What you're saying is, I believe that Jesus is exactly like me. No wonder people like that reject relationships with people who are different because I believe that Jesus is exactly like me and my kind, right? That, my friends, is not not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. That is overestimating your own character and maturity and knowledge and understanding. That is overestimating the strength and depth of your faith. To never change your mind is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Because think about it, the person, because this is exactly what Paul is saying, if you want to be transformed, you have to be able to change your mind from from worse thinking to better thinking, and the person who's able to change their mind is the one who doesn't overestimate themselves, think more highly of themselves than they ought, but the one who with sober-minded, clear-eyed vision is able to identify places where they think well and identify places where their thinking hasn't done so well. And in those places where they're not thinking as well, they're willing to change their mind. That's the definition of humility. Um, my wife is reading a book right now by a woman named Sarah Bessie. The book's called Out of Sorts. It's amazing. Sarah Bessie's amazing. 
And it's about the evolution of her own faith journey. Sarah Bessie writes this. She says, if our beliefs don't shift and change over our lifetimes, then I have to wonder if we're paying attention. See, we, we treat certainty about what we believe. We treat stability and steadfastness in what we believe. I have never changed my opinion about anything. We, believe, we treat that as a badge of honor. I believe the Bible treats that as a badge of immaturity. That if you have never changed your mind about something you believe, it, you have to wonder whether you're even paying attention. Because, because your ability to be changed in the person God wants you to be is directly related to your ability to renew your mind, to change the way you think. And that takes a tremendous amount of humility. It takes a tremendous amount of humility, not just because it's about admitting that we're wrong about stuff. It takes a tremendous amount of humility because of how it comes about. The very next verses... Verse 4 and 5, Paul says this. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, in the church, we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And he goes on to say we all have different gifts, and some are good at this, and some are good at that, and some are more like this, and some are more like that, and we need everybody. The the. The fundamental premise to Paul is if you want to be the person God's created you to be that is directly related to your ability to change your mind which requires a lot of humility because the way you are going to be confronted with faulty and erroneous thinking is God is going to drop you, embed you in a community of diversity where people on all sides think and believe and behave differently than you about faith. That's what the church is. The church is an interconnected web of people who each have their own perspectives and perceptions, their own understandings, their own stories, their own experiences, their own thoughts, their own beliefs, their own convictions, their own uh, behavior, their own convictions about how they're going to behave, how they're going to live their faith. The church is an interconnected web of people who each look at this faith thing slightly differently. And he goes on to say that in this thing called the church, we belong to each other. We're accountable to each other. We're responsible to each other. We're responsible for each other. We are in, inseparable from each other. We are connected together. And it is the diversity of living together in relationship with people who are distinctly different than you in what they think and what they believe and how they behave. That is how we get confronted with new ways of thinking. And that is exactly how we get to the place where we begin to reconsider how we've been doing our own faith as we see it come to life in other people. That's an uncomfortable thing. Paul has said, you know, have a sober, clear-minded assessment of who you are according to the faith that God has given each one of you. And I used to read that and I used to think, Okay, so God has given us each different amounts of faith, right? Because you got to assess yourself according to the faith that God has given you. So we all have a different amount of faith. I have X amount of faith, and you have Y amount of faith. And if X's amount of faith is greater than Y amount of faith, then in my sober assessment, my faith is greater than your faith. Say it a different way, my faith is higher than your faith, in which case my perspective on things, I'm kind of justified in thinking that my perspective on things is deeper or better or stronger than yours, where they differ. But I don't think that's what, I don't think that's what the Bible's saying. 
think what the Bible is saying is you have to assess yourself according to the faith that God has given each one of you. God has given the same faith to each one of you in as different as each one of us is in the way that we think and how we believe and how we live out that faith in our behaviors. As different as we are in our perceptions and perspectives and understandings and experiences and stories and so on, as different as we are, we have all been given exactly the same faith in Jesus Christ if we have made a commitment to live as a follower of Jesus. Which means that each one of our perspectives comes with the validity of somebody who is on a journey of trying to sort this out with Jesus um, and needs to be respected as such. Back to Henry Nouwen. I read Henry Nouwen last week in the book Reaching Out. He says this, there are just as many ways to be a Christian as there are Christians. I'm going to read that again. There are just as many ways to be a Christian as there are Christians. And it seems that more important than the imposition of any doctrine or pre-coded idea is to offer people the place where they can reveal their great human potentials to love, to give, and to create, where they can find the affirmation that gives them the courage to continue their search without fear. What Henry Nowitt is saying is that in a community of diversity, there is just as many ways to be a Christian as there are Christians in our community. Everybody's doing it in their own way. And more important than trying to impose on everybody a uniformity of thought and belief and practice, the more important thing, now one says, is to allow the individuality to emerge, the diversity to take root, so that every person brings to the table their great potential to love and to give and to create. And when you bring that kind of community together, that becomes a safe place where everybody can continue to journey forward in their faith without fear of judgment or coercion or rejection. But that takes humility. Because in order for that to be real in our community, I have to be willing to admit that I might not have it all figured out. And there might be other equally valid and legitimate ways to look at this faith thing, at how I think and how I believe and how I behave as mine. There might be other legitimate, different ways to do this faith thing. And I need those other different ways Because that's how God is going to force to the surface some of the weaknesses of the ways that I think and believe and behave in my faith. And that confrontation from somebody else who lives it differently than me, if I approach that in humility, that's how God is going to transform me into the person he's created me to be. That's why humility matters. In loving people in a way that transcends our differences in how we believe. What we believe about life and faith and everything. So what are the practices of humility? Well, I've been reading, I've read a book recently by a guy named Pete Rollins called The Idolatry of God. And Pete says when we come into contact with people who have a different worldview than us, who look at things differently than we do, we have four strategies for dealing with the awkwardness of that situation. First of all, Pete says one of our strategies is that we try to assimilate the other person into us and into our community. It's sort of a Borg strategy. If you're a Star Trek fan, you know, we will assimilate you. 
Uh, will you just kind of absorb the person for all their differences? You just sort of absorb them into the social norm and you try and force them to become just like everybody else. Because then the difference disappears and the discomfort disappears and now we can go on to being comfortable again. The second strategy Rollins talks about is exclusion. If I can't force you to assimilate and become like me, I can kick you out and want to have nothing to do with you. Right? Either you leave or I leave, but I will not be in community together with somebody who thinks so differently than me. Those are two strategies that do violence to the other person. The other two strategies are strategies that try to be accepting but fail. The, the third strategy is the strategy of toleration. And the strategy of toleration says, We're, you're different than me, but that's okay, provided you hide that difference. If we just don't talk about it, if you don't throw it in my face, if you don't flaunt it, and we can just ignore it, then I can tolerate you. I'll accept you're okay to have around so long as you don't bring all the, you know, your own opinions and stuff. And the fourth strategy, fourth strategy is agreement. The strategy agreement is saying, you know what, we may have some differences, but at the, at the end of the day, we believe basically the same thing. And you kind of whitewash the differences in order to focus on the agreement. And what P. Rollins says is that what all four of those strategies have in common is that they all are the product of one person judging the other person from a position of rightness. Of saying, I'm right and you're wrong, so you need to change and believe like us. I'm right and you're wrong, so you need to leave. I'm right and you're wrong, so you need to not talk about your differences if you want to be accepted here. The last one is, I'm right and I think you're also right, but at least I'm still right. It's all about being right. Convinced that you're right. Rollins tells a story about a guy who was driving home from work down the highway and his cell phone rings and he picks it up and his wife calling. And she says, honey, be careful on your way home from work. I just heard on the news there was a maniac on the highway and he is driving full speed in the wrong direction. And the guy yells back into his phone. He says, honey, I can't talk right now. There's not one of them. There's literally hundreds. <laughs> Never dawns on the guy. He doesn't even entertain the notion that he might be the one who's in the wrong. Everybody else is wrong. It's, it's me who's in the right. Rollins says that's the underlying attitude that matches all of those, and all four of those responses ought to be rejected for the two practices of humility, the first of which is the practice of listening. See, in all of those responses, we're not really listening to each other. We're, only, we're listening so that I can hear in, in what you think and in what you believe, I can listen for ways in which I can refute you or persuade you or coerce you to change your mind and agree with me. Or I listen through my own filter to try and screen out ways that we're different so that I can feel like at least we agree. But it's not real listening. I'm not really listening. My top priority is not to understand you, to understand where you're coming from, to empathize with your experience, to hear your story, to walk in your shoes, to understand where you've been, to understand why you look at the world and at faith the way that you do. That's the practice of listening. I'm sitting across from somebody who thinks differently and believes differently and lives their faith differently than you and saying, I want to understand you. Giving them the right and the dignity to hold an opinion that is different than yours from, the, from a place of wanting to understand 
what they believe and where that comes from just because they are a human being who deserves the right to have an opinion that's different than yours and to be heard and to be understood, to be acknowledged and to be honored. The discipline, the practice of listening. The second practice of humility is the practice of learning, of going beyond just listening to the other person, dignifying them with the opportunity to say their piece, but to actually go beyond permitting them uh, to have a, a different opinion or embracing them, to go beyond that, to celebrating them and actually submitting yourself to their perspective. To enter into the conversation not asking the question, in what ways can this person benefit from my superior rightness? But to enter into the conversation in the, in the spirit of humility, which does not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but who comes into the conversation asking the question, how can I benefit from this person's superior rightness? in some of the ways that they think and believe and behave in their faith? In what ways can what God is doing in them to make them more like Jesus become a part of what God is doing in me to make me more like Jesus? That's the humility of living in community where diversity is the norm, where people think and believe and behave differently in regards to faith, to holding my beliefs and convictions with an open hand and listening to where somebody else is coming from, to their story and their experience and their perspective and asking the question, what can I learn from you? That is the person who does not think more highly of themselves than they ought. That is the person who lives with an open mind and is open to changing their mind about what they think and how they believe and how they behave. And that is the person in whom God has the opportunity to transform them and their community more into the image of Christ. And that, my friends, is what it looks like to love somebody in a way that transcends the differences of how we think and how we believe and how we behave in our common journey together of trying to live in the Jesus way as individuals and as a community. That is the kind of church that Jesus is inviting us to become. Let's pray. Father, our commitment to our certainty, our commitment to our rightness is too often too deep, too instinctive, and too unshakable to the point where we can't even hear what each other are saying. Father, this morning we repent of the ways in which we have thought more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We have thought 
too highly of what we believe, what we think, how we behave. We've thought too highly about our wisdom and our knowledge and our understanding. We've thought too highly about the depth and strength of our faith. We repent of the arrogance of our rightness and our certainty. And we ask you to forgive us and to change us into the kind of people in humility. Open our hearts and open our minds to the ways in which you want to change our lives through the people that you have given us as a gift, the great human potentials to love and to give and to create that we find in the people you've placed all around us, especially those who are pursuing you in a way that is different than we are. We thank you for them. Embrace and celebrate them and pray that you would teach us through them to be like your son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever. Amen.